0: you're listening to the over 50 entrepreneur the podcast that's dedicated to the business builders who are only getting started when most are winding down this is the place to discover how to create more freedom from your business while growing the value of your business now here's your host rick hadrava
1: Hey, everybody, this is Rick Hadrava, and you are listening to another episode of the Over 50 Entrepreneur Podcast. I'm so glad that you joined us once again, and uh, I think you're going to find today's guest, Mike McCallowitz, uh, a wonderful guest. You know, owning a small business is simply, for me, one of the greatest things in the world. You get an opportunity to positively impact your customers and clients, your employees and their families and your community almost on a daily basis. I truly believe that it's the fabric of our country, and it's why I like to spend so much time working with fellow business owners. But the reality remains that half of small businesses don't exist after five years, and only one in three are still around after 10. The fact of running a business, uh, quite frankly, is that it is very challenging. To say that there's a myriad of issues presenting themselves almost daily it's kind of a big misunderstatement um, when, when we make that comment. The the biggest challenge, one of the biggest challenges that we see is financial. The financial health of an organization is often something that leads to failure in business. Matter of fact, what you will find is even the most successful businesses that are growing their revenues will find that they have no money in the bank or worse yet they can't make payroll. And so I think that our guest today Mike is Mike McCallowitz, excuse me, I'm going to get that name out there a couple times. <laughs> I think he he not only has been a successful entrepreneur selling two businesses before he was 35 I think he he would tell you himself, and, and he may do that on the show today, that firsthand he knows what it feels like not to have that money in the bank. But, but what Mike did is he took the time to think about that, and he realized that that was a real problem, and he thought about a solution, and he took that out there, and he's created a wonderful business out of it. He's helped unbelievably, I don't know how many business owners change their financial health. And so... Without further ado, uh, he's an author of Profit First, Surge, The Pumpkin Plan, and his new newest release is Clockwork. Um, I think you're going to get a lot out of this guy today. So, Mike, without further ado, welcome to the Over 50 Entrepreneur Podcast. Rick, thank you so much for having me. It is it's truly a joy to be here. And please
0: feel no—I uh, only feel uncomfortable my la- about my last name and how difficult it's to pronounce— I consider it like riding a bike. The only thing is it's a bike without the seat. So you slip up and it's a little (laughs) bit painful. It's a little bit painful.
1: (laughs) With a name like Hadrava, I'm embarrassed that I didn't nail uh, your (laughs) your last name. Hey, Mike, let's go in for the obvious question to kick the show off today. For me, I have to ask about the two businesses that you created and sold uh, and how that led to your journey of coming up with the concept of Profit First. So would you share that with us? Yeah, the, the bullet points where they were both in the tech space, tech
0: services. One was what was called computer integration, network integration. The other one was in computer crime investigation. And uh, both those businesses I was able to build and sell. It was not an easy journey. They were never profitable, really, when I was running them. But I did have some exits and made some money. And what happened was I started to believe that success is defined by pump and dump when it comes to entrepreneurship. Build it. They will come. Sell it, and to sustain this, I decided to become an angel investor to build as much as possible, as fast as possible, and sell as quickly as possible. I was horrible at that. i I call myself the angel of Death, actually. I was so bad. i I destroyed company after after company, just flagrantly sp- blowing money. and I uh, evaporated all the wealth I had accumulated, made building my first two companies. and um that started probably the darkest period of my life. I, definitely the darkest period of my life. Uh, I, I lost my home. I lost my possessions. I lost everything except for my family. It, it became a turning point for me in that, <laughs> listen, in the moment, you know, those those valleys are something I wouldn't worship on my worst enemy. In hindsight, inevitably, these traumas that we experience in life often become the greatest learning lessons, the greatest opportunities mm-hmm. to spring forward into a new, newly defined self. And I elected to write my own wrongs, to figure out all the elements I didn't understand about entrepreneurship, even though I thought I did. And every book I've write, written to date has admittedly been about something I really don't understand. So I've researched it, I've documented it, I've studied it, I've guinea pigged myself and other businesses on it. And once I know this is the right fix or at least the better fix, it's something that I prepare as a book. And, and as as a result today, I'm a full-time small business author, writing books with this commitment to eradicate entrepreneurial poverty, this believed perceived success that entrepreneurs have and the reality of the struggle. My, my mission is to close that gap.
1: So it's very interesting that you, you talk about um, building these companies, just I almost heard the word pump and dump. Right. Yeah, but yeah. so today I, I, I often am scratching my head cause I don't understand the startup world. I know we need it. Are, do you see a lot of what you what you did and what you went through with angel investing? Is that still pretty prevalent out there today? Yeah, that's a great question. What
0: I see is actually less of it, but I it may be a cognitive bias. I am so committed to building businesses that bring about perpetual joy. I believe success is not now pump and dump like I used to do. It's about a business that supports your lifestyle, that gives you joy when you're doing the activity. That, to me, is the definition of a very successful entrepreneurial venture. But since that's the community I'm serving, I see it more and more. The actual reality of the data, I don't know well enough. I wouldn't be surprised if it's still out there. I do know it goes in waves, and it's very often dictated by what we see in... In the mainstream media, uh, these these super celebrity entrepreneur types, the ones who emblazon the cover of you know fortune and and Inc magazine, uh, and the Mark Zuckerbergs of the world and Elon Musks, I think they become very magnetic, and we think that that is the pathway and we try to replicate it. So at least for now, I think we're in a little bit of a lull, and entrepreneurs are much more into the the component of building a business that is sustainable and supports them. And it's a little less like it was 10 years ago, especially going into 2008, like 2000 to 2008. It was this this pump and dump and build. It was like the second dot com bubble. I see less of
1: it now. Well, and that's um, that's encouraging because I love companies that are focused on growing, um, but but maintaining profitability. Right. And, yeah. I, and, and that's why I think it was actually a business owner friend of mine several years ago that introduced me to your book and gave me a copy. And I remember reading through the book and just having aha moments. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you, you know, I've listened to you on podcasts talk about some of the, the low moments that you've had and how it led to that. But at the end of the day, I see a difference in businesses. You know, we always talk about freedom and we think that owning a business is freedom. And the reality is, it can be, but it can be a big pit um, that we don't get ourselves out of. And that's a component of both financial as well as time. And you've done some great work there. Walk us through, um, if you would, a story or the components of Profit First and how you laid that out um, so that maybe somebody in our audience that isn't familiar with Profit First you know, could become familiar outside of going and getting a copy of the book, obviously.
0: Sure. And yeah, I'd love for for people to check it out. Um, We now have over, or I should say, approximately 300,000 businesses that have implemented Profit First. And so we have case study after case study. My mind often goes to like the top two or three just over and over again. My favorite story is the, it's coming called the Savannah Bananas. It's a real baseball team. They're extraordinarily profitable. They are in the minor slash all-star league of baseball, yet their profit per percentage is outpacing we believe even the major league teams are extremely profitable but are the only team that packs the stadium but it's all rooted in profit first so they've implemented the system what the idea of profit first is is it's a cash management system and what I've come to realize is the vast majority of small business owners don't manage their books by the accounting uh, sheets you know income statement and balance sheet and cash uh, cash flow how we manage our bank account is through what I call bank balance accounting. You log into your bank account, you see your balances, and you make a determination on your, based on the money you have if you can spend or if you need to sell in a panic state. Well, Profit First resides at your bank, and the idea is to intercept the natural behavioral path of how we manage our business. If you log into your bank account to see how much money you have so if you can, to see if you can spend it or not, then we need a system that sits at the bank because now it intercepts where we're going. And what we do is we set up multiple accounts. We're called the five foundational accounts an income account, a profit account, owner's comp, tax, OPEX. There's more than that that you can set up, but these are the five foundational. And the idea is money flows in, it gets carved up based upon percentages into different accounts. So you know the pre intended use of that money before you spend any of that money. And the example with the Savannah Bananas, this baseball team, uh, they were taking money in, and when they funded the profitability they intended, when they paid the owners their compensation, when they reserve money for their tax liabilities, they realized they didn't have as much operating expense budget as they thought they did. So they had to cut costs and increase margin. And they've been, and the biggest opportunity, by the way, is increasing margin. They've been extraordinary at doing that. Finding ways to entertain and bring in more and more customers. They're the only baseball team in the nation that sold out uh, now four consecutive seats, uh, four consecutive seasons of a sold out stadium. And when I say sold out, not in ticket sales alone, but actual attendance. No other baseball team has done that. Well, when they were doing this uh, carve up of the cash at their bank, they looked at their OPEX and they said, wow, there's not enough money to fund these things. What costs can we also cut? And they said, you know what? Let's cut the scoreboard. And they literally cut the electrical bill uh, to the scoreboard. So they reduced some of their electrical costs. And that's just one little example. But I think it's so, it sounds so outrageous, like what baseball team doesn't have a scoreboard? Well, they came to realize that people really attend these games not for the game. Baseball is a little bit boring. Uh, they come for the entertainment. And they decide that we're an entertainment venue. And the scoreboard's not part of entertainment. They also realized they couldn't afford entertainers per se, but they had a baseball team of baseball players. So the first day of practice at a Savannah Bananas training camp is not like how to pitch better, how to catch better. It's actually how to line dance. And (laughs) so these baseball players uh, become the entertainers. And the funny thing is, some people say, well, it's a mockery of baseball. Do you know if you're an all-star player at a college level and you want to work your way toward pros, the most desirous team to play for is the Savannah Bananas because it's the only baseball team that gets 4,500 people watching as opposed to the average game that gets under 300 people kind of mulling around. So people want to play for the Savannah Bananas. It's an extraordinary environment. and It's resulted in incredible profitability, but it's been rooted in profit first. When you carve up your money, you see what's truly available to operate in your, your business, and then you must behave accordingly. You must figure out how do you stretch that dollar? How do you become innovative? How do you challenge the industry norms? Because you took your profit first. And of course, the final component is you've now assured profitability because you've allocated to the account you can even hide it away from yourself, but you have a cold, hard cash profit waiting for your business at the end of every quarter or at the end of every year.
1: You know, Mike, what, what's great about it, and by the way, that's a awesome story. <laughs> and I think, I think what it sounds to me is not only profitable, but I got th- I know baseball players, and they like to have a. F- they're a fun group. They actually like to yeah. joke around and entertain. So it almost seems natural. But you know, for a business. What's interesting to me is, as I've read through your concept, and the truth of it is, it's, it's more about discipline in cash flow management. And I always joke with my CPA friends, look, you do a wonderful job, and I appreciate you. I'm grateful for you, but I don't understand you, right? The the money that you're telling me I should have isn't what's flowing into the bank. And, and that's why I think this is so powerful, because I've seen business owners make strategic decisions based on top-line revenue, yeah. not thinking about profitability or thinking about their OPEX. And I, to me, that's been one of the points I can go in because we use it. And I, I don't know if I told you that before the show, but we're, we're disciples of this. It's I love been, that. It's, I love it's, it. been, it's been great in our work. And my partner, I, I give her a dashboard every month of how we're doing And she's thumbs up. And, you know, as we move forward on projects and things that we want to do, we know exactly where we are. There's no surprise, no surprise in our tax bill, um, but our operating, our strategic decision-making is enhanced because we get a quick, easy way to look at it.
0: Yeah, and if I can, I'm gonna be a little nitpicky in words. I would say, to your point, you are doing strategic decisions because you're looking at what's available for what intention first and working within the confines of that. That's profit first. I would argue, and this is the nitpicky part, that many entrepreneurs are looking at the top line and say they're making strategic decisions, but they're not, because strategic means strategy. <laughs> they're not. They're making critical decisions, meaning we should invest in this, we should do this, but it is, it's actually flippant. It's it's without consideration for the direction of that cash. It's Many entrepreneurs revert to the most apparent, the most prevalent issue at hand, and um. In, unintentionally divert the most energy and cash toward that one problem, overdoing it. So here's an example. I have $10,000 of deposits that came in. Uh, I have an issue with my technology. I look at my $10,000 and say, oh, we got $10,000 for technology. No, you don't. What about all the other issues in your business? Is, is the ROI really there for that? But with Profit First, that $10,000 comes in, it gets carved up, and the OpEx account may be funded to the tune of 3000 $3,000. Now we look at the uh, the IT and say, I got a max of $3,000 here for IT, but there's other things too. And we start kind of putting uh, controls around us and our decision-making does become much more strategic because it puts this forced pause for us to really consider the spend and and consider the consequences if we, if we uh, steal from a profit account or whatever. But when we don't have this and we're doing this bank balance accounting, when we see the full amount, we say, I got 10,000 bucks, we really make truly flippant decisions. We've never caught that, but they're flippant decisions around critical outcomes. So I just wanted to nitpick on that a little bit. But by doing profit first, I'd argue, Rick, you are doing strategic thinking now.
1: Absolutely. And you know, we get excited because we know the next economic down cycle will be here at some point. We don't yeah. know when it is. And you know, you talk about the profit account. We don't even think about taking from that account. And I'll ask you a little bit about that, but we look at it as our future. Like yeah. it's going it's to give us the dry powder to do something big, right? And that gets us excited um, as we move into the future.
0: And I would even encourage you, if you're willing, to take it one step further. Uh, Profit First is rooted in behavioral psychology. And if you if are watching the video, this top row of books is mostly around behavioral psychology. Uh, just the way our mind kind of maps out. And one element I talk about in Profit First is the necessity for the rewards to come out. It's a dopamine response. It's a reward mechanism. And basically is when what I insist is businesses, even with businesses with debt, that a portion of profit is always distributed on a quarterly basis to have a dopamine release because you're rewarding the shareholders, the people that invest in the business. and actually builds our strength, our momentum around profits. We're like, hey, I'm taking money out. Some businesses elect, and I understand the the idea behind this, hey, I'm going to put as much, store as much money uh, away to have some dry powder. Problem is, we can get into this, miser is not the right word, but that's what's coming to mind, almost this miser mindset. We're not giving ourselves a dopamine response and uh, we become this overprotective around cash. So there is a, a refined, a refinement that can be made. In our own business, we have a profit account. We have another account we call The Vault, and I talk about it in the book. But The Vault account is exactly that. It is dry powder. We have reserved now six months of full operating expenses. So we have a monthly nut of a certain dollar amount. We have six months of cash sitting there. And what our belief is, is that if the business starts to slow down, and at some point there will be an economic downturn. I don't know when, but I know it's going to happen. Right. When it does, that account will fund us probably for a year or two because it's very rare that a business goes full stop overnight and um, And then we have to start pulling from that account just to cover month after month. It is likely will be a slow down, but it'll probably be an inward trickle. And since we have enough cash reserve to cover our full expenses, we won't have to cover our full expenses. It may slow down. If the slowdown is extended, we may start making decisions to cut costs, whatever they may be. So that money that's reserved for a full stop for six months can in many cases carry a business for a year or even two. And so we separate out a vault, tribe powder, from profit, which is used to reward the shareholder to keep engagement maximized.
1: And a good point. And I didn't mean to minimize that because we do that. Yeah, and I didn't think that way either. Ma- matter of fact, um, what we know about entrepreneurs specifically is they don't celebrate wins very often. They'll no. high five, there'll be a moment, and then they move on. Right. And what you've done is basically said, hey, once a quarter, Take a distribution. It could be a nice steak dinner out with your significant other. It could be a vacation uh, to Mexico or wherever. But go have some fun and celebrate all the good stuff that's going on. That's what I've taken out of it, um, and, and so it goes kind of hand in hand. I think it's two pronged, and and I really love that, Mike. What what I want to know um, is, you know, so you've been doing this a while. Are there any businesses, any situation where you came up, uh, up against a business owner and said, you know what, I don't think this is going to work for you?
0: Are you uh, unfortunately, yes. Um, there's a couple of scenarios. One scenario is when the partners don't agree. So when one says, I need to do this, and the other one says, we don't need to do it. My suggestions don't do it. It's just going to cause more conflict. Profit first, when people hear it is so simple that there's instant skepticism. By simply, you know, going to my bank and saying multiple accounts, you're saying I can be more profitable, and I'm like, yeah, and they're like, no way, business is way more complex than that. You don't get my industry, and I understand that resistance, uh, and it's human nature, by the way, to when when we're we're having a difficult time accomplishing something, the justification for it says, oh, we're clearly not doing enough complexity, so we actually bring complexity to the situation, to justify why we're not successful at it. Um, so that's why many people who struggle with profit say, well, clearly it's it's the accounting issues and I got to nail the accounting. I'm not going to get to it. And oh, forget it. It's so frustrating. and They give up. So partner conflict um, where one wants to do and one doesn't, profit first is going to be a problem because you now have an adverse situation. One actually kind of wants it to fail to prove themselves right and one wants it to succeed. So that's not good. The other failure point I see is people going in too abruptly. They say, okay, I'm going to do this. And uh, we've never been profitable before, but we're going to start posting a 20% profit allocation. You know, I've never taken pay before. I'm going to start putting 50% toward me and I'm going to reserve for taxes at the tune of, you know, 70%. You add up those numbers, that's beyond 100%. It it won't work. People go in too abruptly. The analogy I use here is like running for a marathon. Like if if you've never run a marathon before, the first day of practice, don't try to run 26.3 miles or whatever. You got to learn how to stretch. It's small incremental steps maybe over months or even years that will get you to running a marathon. And the same thing in profit first is small incremental steps. that will build you uh, out to having a very profitable business. So rushing into it, partner conflict. And the other thing too is, uh, is not this unwillingness to challenge the status quo. That's the third kind of reason I think don't implement profit first while fail you is I've studied now, countless accounting books, not that I've read them through, but I just, I I studied these and there are thousands and thousands of accounting books out there. Every accounting book says that profit is the last thing you take. In fact, it's so pervasive. It's the vernacular we use. We call profit the bottom line. We call profit the year end. All those elements say that profit comes last. And while I understand the logical sense, sales minus expenses, results in profit, the behavioral impact is extraordinary. Because when we say something comes last, it means it's insignificant. Most businesses wait until the end of the year to see if they had a profit when they didn't. They said, oh, shucks, uh, maybe next year. So you may or will get resistance from the professionals who've been trained on this, accountants, bookkeepers, who'll say, this is absurd. Profits always come last. You can't change that. Well, no one said you can't change it. Um, and no one challenged the fact that it was wrong. it's wrong. I would argue it's the equivalent of saying the world is flat. There was a time if you challenged the notion of a flat world, you'd be stoned to death and not in a good way. <laughs> you'd be stoned, you know, killed. Good. So that's the other thing. You may get a resistance from the experts around you. And if you have an unwillingness to challenge the status quo, don't, don't go with private first. It's just going to be, uh, it's going to be convoluted and frustrating throughout. So those are the reasons not to
1: do it. Okay. And obviously if you are starting up a business, um, there's a little runway there before it even matters, or maybe it doesn't. maybe, maybe out of the gate you should start i, I don't I go know your
0: latter point i so we you know of the three hundred thousand or so businesses doing this the vast majority i would say well no, i shouldn't say the vast majority the majority 55 percent i don't know were, we're in the startup phases either they just opened the doors and they implemented the product first or they're just a year or two into the business what we found is an, a new business versus an established business a new business has a faster and more successful track record than established business because a new business, even say I make one dollar in revenue this year, profit first works for a dollar because it's a percentage-based system, and now you're starting to establish good habits from the get-go. The beautiful thing is you don't know the rules of your industry or the rules of how your business is operated, so when you put higher percentages, you just comply with it and you make it happen. It's these established businesses that have been in business. We, we as one manufacturer, we've been in business for 25 years. The, the, we know the margins are two percent. And uh, for profit, we'll never be more than 2%. We know, we've been doing it for 25 years. We have proof. They implemented profit for us and it was a slog to get done. But once they finally started grasping it, you know, I almost want to say miraculously, profits are now approaching 15%. And it's not really miraculous. They just proactively set their profit target and then adjusted the business behind it. Profit historically for most businesses, especially established businesses, is the afterthought. And when it comes as an afterthought, whatever it is, they think, well, that's the standard. But it's not. It's simply because it's an afterthought. That's what it's achieving. So every business can do it. Startup businesses have a better track record in
1: getting it going quickly and appropriately. It's why I was so excited to have you on the show because I think about the business owners. You know, we talk a lot about financial, right? And the projection of your profit in the future, but also the stability of that profit in the future. But it's also cash flow. And business owners, They grind it out. They get caught up in a bottleneck. um, They get burned out. And here's a system that adds a little different approach to a little different financial discipline. And I think it opens the doors and gives you a little breathing room. Uh, You know, if you're going from 2% profit to 15% profit, think of the things that you can do differently in your business. It's incredible. It's Um, a game changer. It's a game changer. Let, Let me just add this.
0: You know, profit as you accumulate it is, is specifically for the shareholder. So when, when they went, that manufacturer went from two to 15%. The first voice that came to mind from them is they said, Hey, we can plow this back into business. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Right. You, plow, you plow back in the business. It's not, it's a figurative expense. I mean, I mean, a figurative profit. Cause you, you showed it on the books of profit, but you spend the money, you know, the difference between expenses and profit is very clear. Expenses is a, is money spent by the business. Profit is money distributed or retained exclusively for the distribution to shareholders. That's it. But we love to play these games with profit. We say, well, I had a 22% profit margin, but I returned the money to the business that reinvested and spent all the money. That wasn't profit. It never was. You played a shell game. So as a business goes from 2 to 15%, the really interesting thing about that manufacturer was it put a downward price pressure on OPEX, meaning there was less available for operating expenses, which the default thinking is I have to cut costs, and they did cut some, but the Actually, greater opportunities, increased margin. We started to ask how do we dictate a much higher price point for the product we sell and service? And with slight modifications to the products, and sure enough, margins went up significantly. It's actually just a color change. Uh, it's coming in brakes. It's crazy. They went from the, the brakes were black brakes, they're, they're brakes for uh, vehicles, for Jeeps specifically. They painted them red. They just spray painted them red and said, here's our red. It's called the Red Line Series. And uh, you know, of course with the red line, the course. And um, the the and it, there's no other description, it's called the red line series. It went up. And the value to the consumer is you can see the brakes are exposed on many vehicles. You can see the brakes and it gives it a little bit of pop. They paid a massive premium for this. And the, the cost difference was actually a drop because red is a more prevalent color, at least for this manufacturing line, than it was for black. So it actually drop our cost a little bit, perceived value went up, margin goes up, we were able to go from two to fifteen.
1: Now, was that so go back. So those decisions were predicated on looking at ways to increase the margins in the business they were doing because the, the uh, capital that they had available was actually different, right, to exactly. your point? Exactly. So okay. what happens is they're taking 2%.
0: Uh, well, they weren't even taking 2%. They were just running the business and what was left over was 2% for profit. Then we implemented profit first. We set these accounts at their bank and we start saying, we're going to step into this. So we're going to go from 2% to 3%, but we're going to take that profit first. So we allocate it. Now there's less money and less cash flowing to OpEx. So they start feeling a little bit of a pinch. Then we move from 3 to 4% and they're like, we can't sustain uh, our expenses right now, which that's your business speaking to you. Because if you can't pay your bills, your business is telling you you can't afford your bills and there's only two ways to resolve that. Cut costs. Most businesses can cut costs by 10% pretty easily, but at a certain point, you start cutting the muscle of the business, as opposed to the fat, or increase margin. So, the conversation be said, well, how do we get more for what we pay for? And one person said, hey, you know what? We've had, it was a sales guy, said, so we have people calling in asking if we have other colors than black. Um, we never even broached this, but can we do another color? And so, they called the, uh, the paint line, whatever it was, but they, they figured out red was the color. Uh, they come up with a new name for it, and then... <laughs> Uh, and out of the gate, we charge a higher premium. We didn't say, you know what, let's charge a premium that'll give us a 3% profit margin. We said, let's put this at a 20% and see what happens and start selling like hotcakes. But that would have never happened unless they started to feel the pinch or the pain of taking profit first, which yeah. triggered this reverse engineering of that profitability.
1: Incredible stuff. I, I appreciate it. I'm going to take this a different direction. And because what I want our audience to understand, um, Hopefully, financially, if they're not doing this, you know we'll show them how to how to do things like get a hold of the assessment and and learn more about what you do. Here's what I want to know, Mike. Yeah. So you were sitting there, you had these experiences. Uh, we'll say they weren't the best positive moments, um, but out of that came profit first. So how did you take this idea? Share with our audience. Behind the curtains a little bit, how did Mike take the business of profit first and become a business? I, I think that's an interesting story with what you're doing.
0: Yeah, thank you for asking that, and it's it's rarely asked. So you know that dark period of my life. It was around 2008. It was during the great economic decline, um, and that was this, this angel investor, chock full of arrogance and ignorance, a deadly combination. I lost everything. And I found there's a question you can ask yourself. Uh, actually, it's two questions, but they're complementary. Many of us ask one without the other. The, the question we do ask is, if I had all the money in the world, what would I do? That's our dream vocation, our dream job. The second question is, when you have no money, and that's where I was, I was totally broke. I said, now that I have no money, with no money, what do I feel called to do to generate money? And when the answer is the same, my dream is to be, in my case, it was an author, and my vocation was to be an author to bring uh, you know, income into my household. Then I had alignment. I'm like, I'm all in as an author. Well, as an author, it, it was funny. I I started to interview the best people in the industry at the time. Tim Ferriss. I got a chance to meet with him for a half hour. Uh, we were both going on a television show by chance. We're sitting in a green green room, and I just drilled him with questions. Uh, so ask the best people how they do it, and uh, I asked them, and they all were making money selling books. So I figured out, okay, I got to sell a certain volume of books and how to position it to make profit. Then I also started asking people outside the space how are they generating revenue, and uh, one it happened to be an author. His name was John Jance. Turned me on this concept of a membership program. And I met other people. I met this woman, Robin Robbins, was uh, brought such awareness to me around how a membership program could operate. Well, once you have uh, intellectual property in a book. Uh, and it, it's you're selling it, meaning there's brand awareness. There's going to be a constituency of people that want to leverage off of that momentum the book has. So it was pretty clear that we could be successful as a membership organization. The final piece of this puzzle was the first readers. The first readers of Profit First, uh, they read the book and said, love the book, love the concept. My accountant doesn't support this. Can you introduce me to the accountant who supports it? So now I thought, oh my gosh, Uh, There's a licensing opportunity, there's a membership program, and I know who to make these members. It's accountants and bookkeepers. And that started this organization we call Profit First Professionals. Today, globally, we have over 400, I don't know the exact count, but it's well over 400 certified active members uh, in Profit First. We have an office, we're based out of New Jersey. This is actually, I'm at the office right now, um, but we have an office in Melbourne, Australia, and another location in Armisfort, Netherlands. And uh, it, it really has taken on this global presence. We're not in all pockets of the world, but we're expanding out because this this challenge, you, you were talking about the U.S. market. Um, and, you know, after five years, half the businesses are out. Within 10 years, one third are left standing. That's a global phenomenon. And I think Profit First uh, can fix that. We're really on this mission to eradicate entrepreneurial poverty.
1: So enjoy it. So knowing what you know you've been through this experience let's say there's somebody in the audience today that has an idea right maybe it's a book maybe it's not yeah. and you know one, one of the things that i try to bring is some some experience um for second half entrepreneurs as well right they they've been in corporate uh, or they're still working at something they they love but inside of them there's something else they want to explore what advice would you give them on, on how to build a company on a platform kind of like what you've done?
0: Yeah, so first of all, I would say do it. Um, don't pause much. Uh, the majority of the learning happens in the doing. You've probably heard that before. I, I've seen, I believe, too many entrepreneurs contemplate and plan, and the opportunity misses them. Um, they actually overlearn, and they become these perpetual learners, and that that's dangerous. Learn on the job. Um, the second thing is I would... S- say do you want to be the product or the platform the the platform is the exp- the, the the basis of marketing the, the brand kind of uh, advocate and th- and that's what i've done as an author i consider myself a platform the product is the 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 end deliverable to the customer the book's a little part of it but really for us it's this organization of product first professionals i license that so i in this case specifically, I actually have a partner in it. I have an equity stake in the business, but it's a licensing plan. I've written other books. Clockwork is another one of mine that's relatively popular. Clockwork, I've licensed it out. So I, I don't own that company. I'm not the president of it, but I have a vested interest in its ongoing success. And the beautiful thing is I get to continue to promote the platform, exposure of the brands, and they work collectively and cohesively. And then the leaders of those individual companies, they are the products and are, are pushing the products out there to be of greater and greater service to the community and, and grow those businesses. I think the danger, if you're considering a new concept, is to try to pull off both. Like, to try to be the Amazon and to sell your products for Amazon. Either make the products that you sell on Amazon or be the Amazon. But Trying to be both is the danger. Pick one that's rooted in your strength, that, that speaks to your passion and joy, and you'll likely be most successful in that category.
1: I think the biggest thing that I, I would uh, back you up on is, but go out there and try. Right, oh, yeah. you yeah. you can learn, learn, learn all day long, and take the courage and you you hit on it. I'm I'm still learning, right? Um, yeah. I, I often tell my partner that the real um, courage is the fact that I'm pushed to continue to learn more and more every day. Um, but but if you don't get out there and do it, you're never going to know, right? And and that's what I love about our economy today and technology coming together uh we can explore things that we this wouldn't have been possible 15 20 years oh, ago i agree
0: you know and you can mitigate your risk too by having a service orientation or being full service like if i start a cleaning business all i need is a mop and some cleaning materials and, and i can get out there because i am the the most important component the activity and i as a solopreneur can start doing that if i decide that i'm going to start building things now i got to buy those materials Actually, assemble it. There's a lot more cost in getting it started. So, even if we're looking at a product, like maybe you're looking at one day, I want to build jets. Like, this, I'm speaking extreme thing. You know, that's going to require a lot of uh, capital and stuff to get started. But could you be a flight instructor for jets first? Now it's just on your own education, and maybe you already have a propensity there. You can get momentum quicker and you can start stepping your way into it and exploring that space, even though. Uh, not directly, you can start exploring and touching on that space because now at least you're in that category. Service-based businesses typically have a very low threshold. And for many businesses, we can start up almost at a zero cost threshold uh, if you if you move in as a consulting angle. And product-based businesses, usually there's a lot greater investment up front and therefore a lot greater risk.
1: Some really good, some really good nuggets today, Mike. I, I just am grateful for you. Hey what so what we're coming towards the end of the show, and we could talk forever um, and I hope we get a chance to do it again because I think there's some things as as your new projects are coming out um, we we can visit with. but what advice well, let me back up yeah. as an, as an entrepreneur you you think about things what what does freedom mean to Mike?
0: Freedom to me means that i'm not
1: beholden
0: to the deadlines uh, of time uh dictated by other people i am responsible to deliver on the expectations that i set with other people and, and i can manage those expectations but that my utilization of time is not dictated by others that's the ultimate freedom now part of that's money, right, so as you uh, generate wealth for yourself, uh, you can be much more selective in the things you do listen i 've been broke and i 've been wealthy. And I know the difference and wealthy is a much happier space than being broke. Uh, I can attest to that the power is you can be wealthy um and not beholden to the time expectations of others. You can truly manage it. And that to me is the ultimate definition of freedom and happiness. I also know people that are financially wealthy, but they are time depleted. They're in constant stress. And that quite frankly is worse, I believe perceptually than being broke. Because when you have wealth, uh, there is this requirement to maintain and sustain that wealth. Many people that achieve wealth start living a lifestyle accordingly. And now if they're not delivering on the expectations of others in those time frames, their wealth starts to deplete and they can't sustain their lifestyle. So there's actually more stress, more stress in their life. So it's this balance of accumulating wealth, which can be a vehicle for freedom, but not being beholden to the time constraints of others. And you have to do this by structuring your life and organization accordingly. That is the ultimate freedom.
1: Maybe they need a little Profit First in their life. Yeah, right? I, I hope that will help. That's my intention. <laughs> hey, so, Mike, if somebody is listening today and, you know, they've gotten a nugget out of here and they want to explore it more, how do they learn more about Profit First or any of the other stuff that you do in your your organization? Thank you. It's at my website,
0: which is com. But here's the shortcut we talked about it earlier. It is the most difficult, probably the most difficult name I can think of. There's a shortcut. It's called Mike Motorbike. That was my nickname, Rick, in high school. The irony, as a quick aside, I've never driven a motorcycle ever. I don't plan to actually, but go to MikeMotorbike.com. It's the rhyme that works. So go to mikemotorbike.com. All my books are there. And I give away free chapters, but not just, you know, teaser chapters, actual meat and potatoes. You'll get results by reading the chapters, including my brand, brand new book that's not even released yet. It's called Fix This Next. I actually think it will be my most important book I've ever written. That's coming out in 2020, um, but that's available to get the access to those chapters even before the book releases. You Go to MikeMotorBike.com, click on Get the Tools, and all the content will be provided to you. It
1: is totally free. Excellent. Excellent. Well, I hope to have you on again where we can talk about your next book and your project. I know it'll be successful. I appreciate all the contributions you've made in the entrepreneurial world. Um, And and it's meaningful, a personal level, as well as the people that we've been able to share the concept with. So, Mike, thank you for being on the show. Rick, thank you so much for having me. Guys, you've been listening to the Over 50 Entrepreneur Podcast. Again, I really, really appreciate you taking the time to listen to the show. This is Rick Hadrava, And until next time, keep moving the dial. The Over 50
0: Entrepreneur Podcast is sponsored by Epic Business Advisory, where we help entrepreneurs escape the owner's trap, build businesses that can succeed without you, allowing you the opportunity to realize more freedom, think bigger, and pursue next-level goals. Download our Freedom Formula at epicsbiz.com formula. And remember, we're only getting started.